Now sometimes when we use a word like magnified you might misunderstand what's going on when we ask God to do that because what magnifying glasses do is to take things that are small and make them look big. But a telescope does the opposite. It takes something that's big but looks small because it's far away and brings it closer by. When we ask God to magnify himself, we're not asking God to take something that's small and make it look like it's big. That's deceit. That's unreality. What we're really saying is, do something like what a telescope does. You really are big, you become small, we can't see, come close, so we can see how big you really are. Okay, that's really what's going on. And so let's pray that God will do that. Father, thank you that uh, a whole purpose of this word that is before us is to, sh- is to act like a telescope. We lose sight of your bigness. And then you come and show us by painting in very broad strokes what's going on, how big you really are. And then for reasons only known to yourself, you've chosen to do that through frail vessels, what? Human vessels. Tongues that are limited, ears that are blocked. And so we pray that you will anoint my lips and you will anoint the ears of our listeners. By the time we're finished, you will have answered that prayer. Through everything that has happened this morning, in Jesus' name. This past Saturday, Star had an article on uh, the Beijing Olympics coming up next year. A year after that, I should say. Uh, one of my favorite uh, events in the Summer Olympics is, is always the four-man relays. You know, And those of you who watch that know that the most critical moment, probably the most critical part of, of those four-man relays is when the baton is handed over. It has to happen within a certain specified period. There are two lines that are drawn on the track. And the person who's handing it over has to know exactly when to start loosening the grip. And the person receiving it needs to know exactly when to tighten the grip, stop looking back and start running forward. And this is something they practice over and over and over again. Today in our study in faith, as we continue working our way through Hebrews chapter 11, we have that kind of a picture of a, of a biblical relay. Only this one doesn't last uh, 47 seconds or 3 minutes, 34 seconds or whatever the world records are for the 100 and 400 meters. This one is something that has lasted decades and centuries. And as we take a look at that, as you listen, I'm, I, the sermon is sort of like a TV announcer calling the race this morning. That's what I'm going to do. And as you watch and as you enter in, by the end I hope you will realize that you are not just spectators for this race, but you are actually participators in the same race. There's a baton that is in our hands. And there's a generation that is waiting to take it from us. Passing it cleanly is absolutely critical. And it has everything to do with faith and invisible reality, which is what the theme of Hebrews 11 is all about. Here's a description of the very long four-man relay race. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Each of them are three men at their deathbed. But while three men are mentioned here, actually, I need to take one step back and go back to Abraham again. Because he is the one who handed the baton to Isaac. Now last week we looked at that supreme test of faith. 
when Abraham was asked by God to offer his son Isaac. And we learned about the contrast between the reasoning of faith and the reasoning of unbelief. But today I want to talk a little bit about the impact that must have had on Isaac, which we didn't look at last week. I mean, he was, Isaac was old enough to take a three-day journey with his dad and carry wood and talk about sacrifices and offerings, so he must have been old enough to have been significantly impacted. Now, I don't know whether Isaac kept journals in those days, but if he did, you might read an entry something like this. That walk to Moriah was quiet. Dad didn't say very much. On the third day when we came face to face with Mount Moriah, Dad turned to the servants next to us and said, you guys stay here, the boy and I are going to worship and we are going to come back. Well, at that time, it was of course natural for me to think that we were coming back. But now that I know what he was planning to do with me, I can imagine what an incredible statement of faith that must have been. (laughs) Knowing that he was going to sacrifice me to say to the servants, we are both coming back. Evidently there wasn't the slightest doubt in his mind that God was going to do this absolutely unprecedented thing of raise me up from the dead. As we continued further, I began to wonder, we have the flint to start the fire, we have the wood, but we don't have the customary lamb with us. So I asked my dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And all he said to me was, son, God will provide the lamb. Now I know what a heart-wrenching question that must have been for him to hear me ask him, where's the sacrifice going to come back, knowing what he was planning to do. Well, we finally got to Mount Moriah and we began building altars. My dad built altars all the time. I knew how it was and we helped him. And we arranged all the wood on the altar. And then dad turned to me and he put his hands on my shoulders. He looked into my eyes and he started crying. That's when I knew what was going to happen. Now, of course, at this time, the Bible doesn't tell us whether Isaac resisted or whether he submitted. I don't know whether a 115-year-old man could have overpowered a 15-year-old boy against Elwood. I don't know those things. So we need to slip ahead to what we do know. What we do know was that Isaac found himself on the altar bound. And so he might pick up his journal in these words. He said, the last thing I could bear to see with my open eyes was my father's face above me, filled with tears, with a glistening dagger in his hand. I couldn't bear it, so I just closed my eyes and steeled myself for the inevitable. But nothing happened. And all of a sudden I began to feel the ropes beginning to loosen. I opened my eyes. And all I saw was an inexpressible expression of joy on my father's face. And I heard some rustling in the background and he was pointing to me excitedly. And there was a ram that was caught in the thicket. God had provided a sacrifice. And so we took the animal and we sacrificed it. And on the way back I asked him, what happened? And he said, son, in that instant when my knife was raised above you, when I was completely and totally committed to plunging that knife into your hand, this is what I heard. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I swear by myself that because you have done this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now imagine folks, what effect does it have on a teenager here to hear dad, your father spoken of like that by God? Don't tell me it couldn't have touched his heart. 
And then for him to say, me, I am the offspring. And through me, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That baton was passed very successfully on that critical day. Well, now we fast forward. Now we fast forward to the day when Isaac is ready to hand the baton over. Sadly, we see a a far less spectacular man than Abraham. In fact, there's very little written in Genesis about Isaac compared to Abraham, Jacob and Joseph. We see a man, unfortunately, in whom visible reality had begun to take a bit of a hold. (laughs) The vision had weakened somewhere along the way. He was a man, he was a hunter, he was a man of the open field, he liked wild game. And so his favorite son Esau, he said to him, you go hunt and make me my favorite dish. Everything was focused on visible reality. Maybe there was some cultural dimensions to it, I don't know. And then he said, and I'll bless you. Now, now the, if you know the story, you will know that at the time when these twins were born, uh, Esau was technically the firstborn because they were twins, he came out first. God had already told Rebekah, it's the younger that's going to be blessed. Now the text doesn't tell us whether Rebecca told Isaac or not. I find it very hard to believe that she would not have said anything to him. If he did, then Isaac's decision to bless Esau is an even further capitulation to visible reality. Knowing that God had said that the younger would be blessed, he still said, why? Because he liked Esau and Rebecca liked Jacob. They were playing favorites. And Jacob for his part willfully participated in a scheme of deception that Rebecca cooked up to deceiving Isaac into thinking that Jacob was Esau and giving him the blessing. Well, immediately after that was done, Esau comes back with his meat already, ready to get the blessing. And he discovers that his younger brother has cheated him. And Jacob said, uh, Esau said, was there no blessing for me? And his father said, I have blessed and he is blessed. I cannot uh, reverse it. Now, of course, Esau had very conveniently forgotten in all his hot indignation and anger that some time ago he had capitulated a visible reality. He came home from one of his hunting trips. He was so hungry, all visible reality. He saw Jacob cooking some pot from soup. And Jacob, he said to Jacob, I want the food. And Jacob said, give me your birthright. And you know what Esau said? Who cares about the birthright? You can have it. He had no concern with the invisible reality. Of course, he forgot all of that. And he begged his father, aren't you going to bless me? Is any blessing left? His father said no, but then he gave him a kind of a secondary blessing. Now you got to admit, this is a pretty dysfunctional family. Mothers and fathers playing favorite with sons, getting involved in deception, selling their birthright. So what is this? What are these people doing in Hebrews 11? Is <laughs> a good question. You know, in spite of all of their shortcomings, in spite of the dysfunctionality of these families, All the main characters in the drama, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, they were all agreed on one thing, (laughs) the critical importance of the blessing. That much invisible reality was still gripping them. Isaac knew that his job as a father wasn't finished until he had blessed his sons and daughters and handed over the baton. Jacob knew it was valuable enough, that birthright, and he wanted it all his life. And Esau finally recognized his utter foolishness in having given away that birthright just for soup and begged and begged and begged for it. So you see, ultimately this story is still a story of faith in invisible reality. That somehow a generation and a generation as yet unborn perhaps would stand to inherit the blessing of the land and the seed that God had promised Abraham. After all, you've got to remember when Isaac was pronouncing this blessing on Jacob even though he thought it was Esau, 
He was an insignificant little man with an insignificant little family in this huge land of Canaan, dominated by all these ungodly religions. Invisible reality was dominant, so there was at least that much. And look at the, in that context, look at the, uh, the courage on this blessing. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mothers bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So there was still enough hold on invisible reality to be able to fulfill this important task. I want to ask you something. Aren't you glad that this dysfunctional family is there in this record? Because it gives hope for many of us who are in from that. Last night in the testimony service, we had a beautiful testimony from a woman who comes from a thoroughly dysfunctional family. And what she is doing to communicate the blessing. It means that none of you have to discount the rest of this message. And say, I'm too far gone, this couldn't work in my family. None of you have to disqualify yourself. It seems faith is so important that even the most rudimentary faith in invisible reality gives God tremendous footholds within which to advance His global purposes. And I trust you are encouraged because of that. It doesn't matter what your past is. You've still got the time between now and when you die. There's a lot of blessing you can do in that time. Well, let's fast forward to the third baton pass. We move on from the life of Isaac to the life of Jacob. By now, Jacob is in Egypt. And his son Joseph is actually second in command over all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. They are the objects of Pharaoh's uh, favor. They are living in a good part of the country. In the land of Goshen. In the land of plenty. And, so, and then Joseph has two sons that were born to him. He has gone through some difficulties and trials in Egypt. And most of you know that story. And has been influential in bringing his father back. And so he goes to visit his dad, Jacob, on his deathbed. And he takes his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with him for the blessing. And of course, Jacob has told Joseph, your two sons that are born to you will be counted as my sons. So while he's blessing his grandsons, he's in fact blessing them as his sons. And so Joseph very carefully guides his firstborn towards Jacob's right hand and his secondborn towards Jacob's left hand. Expecting the firstborn to be blessed. <laughs> While Jacob, in a stark contrast between his father Isaac, switches his hands. And he puts his right hand over the younger one. And his left hand over the older one. And to pronounce a blessing. Now Jake, Joseph doesn't like it. And so he attempts to correct his father. Now you got to admit that the father was quite indebted to the son. It was only because of Joseph that he was in Egypt. His family was in good condition. But he... In a very remarkable display of faith. I'm not, the Bible doesn't tell us how he discerned this. But it does paint a sharp contrast to Isaac. Isaac knew that the second born was, most likely knew that the second born was the one that was going to be blessed, but insisted on blessing his favorite. Jacob does the exact opposite. And so it's a beautiful picture of invisible reality. Going against the accepted grain. Somehow having discerned that it was God's purposes to bless. The, I mean, he blessed both. But he put the blessing on the firstborn. And so he resists Jacob, Joseph's attempts to correct him. And he blesses. Now this is, these are the words of the blessing. Then he blessed Joseph. And of course in blessing the sons is, is really blessing Joseph. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly upon the earth. The core of the blessing, the core of the blessing is that this future generation would indeed inherit the promise. The promise of seed, 
and the promise of land. Now you say, where's the promise of land in here? It doesn't show up in this blessing, but if you continue to read in Genesis 48, as Jacob pronounces uh, exhortations and prophetic predictions upon each of his 12 sons, one of the things he says to them at the end, he says, make sure that you bury me in Canaan. Now here's the question, folks. Visible reality would say that was stupid. After all, where, they, where were they? They were in Egypt. They were the objects of the favor of the king of, of Pharaoh. His son was the second most influential man. Why on earth would anyone want to go to that horrible place, Canaan, back again? With all of its problems and ungodliness and unrighteousness, who knows what else. But see, that was visible reality. Invisible reality was that which gripped Jacob's heart. He knew that the promised land was not Egypt. It was Canaan. And so he says, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac will be your God. The God of Jacob will be your God. You will multiply and it will be back in the land of Canaan, which is a promised land. So make sure you bury me over there. Well, we move on now to the fourth, the life of Joseph, near the end of his life. Now, by this time, Joseph is approaching his death and he realizes that his father's exhortations to bury him is not going to be fulfilled within his lifetime. This was a growing awareness that this promise was lengthening in time. And so Joseph passes on that same exhortation. We don't see him blessing his sons because his father has blessed him as his sons. And so he exhorts his brothers with these words. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your bones and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Twice in this section he says, God will surely come to your aid. Now again folks, that's a foolish statement in the light of visible reality. Visible reality said, they don't need any aid. Why do you need aid in Egypt? When you are second most important person in all of the country. That was visible reality. But a, a, a prophetic insight into invisible reality began to take over this man. Because he knew that circumstances were going to change. That one day they would need aid. And God would come to them. Surely, God, twice it is mentioned, surely God will come to your aid, which means surely you're going to get into a place where you're going to need help. And when that happens, you're going to go back to the promised land. Make sure you take my bones along with dad's bones as well. We're both going to go there. And so he just continues that same exhortation. And all four of them are mentioned. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now him. You see, these people were all aware of the fact that this race involved more than four people. It didn't involve an unspecified number of generations. They didn't know how many and they didn't know how long. Here's what they did know. They knew there was a race to be run. They knew there was a promise to be taken a hold of. And they knew there was a job in inspiring and transmitting that hope to the next generation. That much they knew. That's the first thing we pick, from, pick up from these stories. The second thing we pick up is that these blessings were neither personal nor private. Sorry, neither personal nor just limited to the nuclear family. The you in here is plural. They always involve the whole community of Israel and eventually the nations of the world. So now with all of that, we can step back 
and, and articulate what, what I think is the heart of the blessing. And this is my best words to capture it. The blessing was always formulated in terms of the absolute conviction of the future fulfillment of the divine word of promise to a generation as yet unborn in the face of insurmountable obstacles thrown up by visible reality. The blessing therefore provided the motivation to faithful obedience in that same visible and often hostile reality. Let me read that for you again. The blessing was always formulated in terms of the absolute conviction of the future fulfillment of the divine word of promise to a generation as yet unborn in the face of insurmountable obstacles thrown up by visible reality. The blessing therefore provided the motivation to faithful obedience in that same visible and often hostile reality. This is the baton that has been passed to you and to me. Only we are now in the new covenant, not under the Abrahamic, it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And as we have been learning from our Beth Moore studies, and as I reminded you last week, the essence of the new covenant is internal rather than external. It is spiritual rather than literal. And so the land promise has now become a promise of the nations. Every tribe, nation, language and tribe. Revelation chapter 5 shows us a picture of the fulfilled promise. Shows us people from every tribe, nation and language worshipping Jesus. That's the promise of the land. As far as the promise of the seed, it is now no longer the nation of Israel. It is not one particular ethnic community. It is people from these same tribes, nation and languages. Every one of whom has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ, forming this community called the church. So the church is now the fulfillment of the promise of the seed and global missions to the nations is the fulfillment of the inheritance of the land. That's the race that you and I are running. Therefore at heart, the race that you and I are called to run, every Christian is called to run. If you want to boil down our purpose in life to its absolute irreducible minimum, it is these two things. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he commissioned the church to go to the nations. So the irreducible minimum statement of our calling, every single one of the baton that is in our hand, to in some way or another be involved in the building of local worshipping communities, that are then evangelizing their own communities and eventually sending mission representatives to the furthest corners of the earth. That, that is the essence and the heart of the... And just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, because you and I do not know which generation this promise will be finished, which generation the purposes will be consummated, we not only live those two things ourselves, we pass the baton on to our sons and to our daughters, we commission our children and our grandchildren and encourage and strengthen them and make it possible for them to also continue to run the same race, which is to build local churches, to be involved in some way, to build local worshipping communities and then eventually being involved in taking that gospel to the nation so the seed and the land promise can be fulfilled. What I would like to do in closing <clears throat> is to talk about one particular way that is the focus of this text, which is words of blessing. <coughs> whether to our literal sons and daughters in the first place <coughs> and to spiritual sons and daughters. And we talked about that as well. How do we go about fashioning words of blessing? One of the things we've been learning in our Sunday night journeys through faith is that while God is, God's words are omnipotent, yours and mine, because you and I have been made in the image of God, are potent. And the most potent words that we can speak are words of Scripture. And so the first and most obvious source of fashioning words of blessing are from the scripture itself. One whole new reason for parents, and because all of us are called to have spiritual sons, and for everyone to read the scriptures, is to mine them for words of blessing. 
And if you want to know how to get started and this doesn't come naturally to you, uh, Desiring God Ministries from uh, John Piper's church has a little booklet called A Father's Guide to Blessing His Children and 24 verses of scripture that have already been turned into blessing. Great place to start and you can uh, order that from, it's only $8 for the whole packet. <clears throat> now you might ask as I keep reading the scriptures, how do I know which blessings to choose for my children? For, or for any sons or daughter, or for me, for a congregation. This is where the second element of fashioning blessing becomes very important, and that is to see how God has gifted them. One of the most common indicators, not the only, but one of the most common indicators of how our sons and our daughters of the next generation are going to play their part in this twofold mission of build, contributing to the building of local worshipping communities that are then evangelizing and missionary communities. One of the primary indications of that is through the gifts that God has given to them. Because He's equipped them for that purpose. They may be insignificant and noticed by very few people, or they may look significant and be noticed by many people. That's God's business. But whatever it is, it will involve these things. And I know I can only speak from our own experience. Fairly early in our journey through this process, we were able to discern that Sheila's primary gifts were mercy and hospitality. Very much not surprising because Sham has those gifts. Bijay's gifts were, encouragement came out very first and then leadership began to develop over a period of time. And so for us, the words of scripture were then used to specifically reinforce these particular gifts and just paint pictures of various ways in which they might fall. That time we had no idea what actual shape it would take. But our job was to paint a picture through those words of a possible future in which these two things could be fulfilled. And then, when we see movement in that direction, to begin to encourage them and to say, we will do whatever we can to help you. And by the way, that doesn't stop when they get older and get married. He just adds two more children or however many more children and continue the same process in your life. The other thing that helped us a lot was significant circumstances. Watching the significant circumstances. The scriptures, the spiritual gifts and the circumstances. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, a few years ago, uh, it, was, it was the year before Benjamin was born. Benjamin was born in February and so this was the year, uh, New Year's Eve before that. And we kind of, our family had gathered together and we were just sharing uh, our impressions of our journey that year and each one shared what they would like in the year ahead and so at the end of that I had us just go around the room and each one I said pray for whoever's on your heart uh, and so when they did it finally came to me and Sheila was the only person who hadn't been prayed for at that time so I prayed for her and then I did of course and because she was obviously pregnant with, with a child at that time I included a prayer for that child as well. Now, I don't have very strong prophetic kind of gifts. I'm not particularly charismatic in my approach to preaching and things like that. Periodically, God takes over. But uh, this time, as soon as I finished praying for her and started praying for the child, I didn't even know it was a boy or a Benjamin at that time, I began to pray. And I, I felt this sense of faith and intensity and urgency welling up within my heart. Anyway, I finished praying and then Sheila said to me at that time, I don't know whether you remember that, she said, Dad, until you started praying for him, he was, the baby was just absolutely calm inside me. But as soon as you started praying, he just started getting moving all over the place. Well, that immediately brought to my mind Elizabeth. You know, when she said, who, is, who am I? When the mother of my Lord 
when that voice was heard, the baby in my womb left for joy. So I just latched on to that promise and I prayed for Benjamin from that time on that he would, be un- have, would have been uniquely set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And then another time, we were, Sham and I happened to be reading, got to the same portion, Genesis 49, uh, Jacob's blessing on all of his sons. And he, sp- he spoke blessings that were appropriate. He knew, if you read that section in Genesis 40, at the end of 49, the most amazing thing is how well he knew each of his sons. And, and the words, those final words were very much appropriate to who they were. And he says that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the plunder. And so, I mean, those are very powerful word pictures. Now, they can be used for negative or positive things. And so I've used that to, whenever I pray for him and, and as he grows older to continue to turn those, tell him those stories and turn them into blessings. Uh, that, not that he would be a selfish man who is ravenous and devouring prey for his own benefit, but that he would become ravenous when it comes to the souls of men and women. And that he would become a devourer of the enemy. And he would be bold and he would be courageous. And many of his personality characteristics show that that might very well be the kind of thing. And we'll just keep watching. Uh, another example, this time from Shem, when Vijay was in his second year university, he was sharing uh, a house with uh, uh, quite a few people and uh, let me put it this way that almost all of his colleagues in that room uh, liked to regularly partake of liquid refreshment of a certain kind. You know? <laughs> and so one weekend when we went there, Sham, like all mothers do, had lots of food <laughs> to give to her son. Well, she went and opened the fridge, and that was a mistake. (laughs) There was no place to put any of the food, because it was all liquid refreshment in there. So she came back quite agitated about this, you know. And of course, the initial tendency was to call, warn, and all those fearful kind of responses. But she's also a wise woman who knows how to go to the scriptures. And so I don't know how long after that, she read in Proverbs 31, which we usually know as as the... wife of Proverbs 31 very few people seem to remember that the first seven verses has to do with a king and these were the words she read oh my son, oh son of my womb oh son of my vows do not spend your strength on women your vigor on those who ruin kings it is not for kings to drink wine lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights give beer to those who are perishing wine to those who are in anguish let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more it's obviously talking about drinking to the extent that you get insensitive. This is, not a, this is not a chapter on social drinking. This is talking about what a king needs to remember. And knowing that our son's gift was in leadership, Sham wrote him a beautiful letter. Not one of warning and not one of fearful exhortation. She just painted a picture of what God has in mind for him as a leader. <laughs> Later on he said, Dad, I'm, Mom, I've never received a letter like that from you before. you know." But it served its purpose because it was words of blessing that painted a picture. And that there was a combination of all those three things. Scripture, uh, spiritual gifts, and circumstance. Now for every one story that I have, Sham has about 10 or 11, because this is her major calling in life. Her major calling is to be that of an intercessor. Not all of us, I don't have that as my major calling. So not all of us need to do this kind of thing with anything called, don't get me wrong, there's nothing to do with expertise. It has to do with you in your heart taking God's word and finding out what your sons and daughters and your spiritual sons and daughters are like and just releasing the power of God. That's all it is. That's why Isaac's family is in there, folks, so not a single one of us need to despair. But wherever it is, just get started. (coughs) 
one last thing and with that we're finished. I, I've been familiar with this issue of blessing for a long, long time. I've said 33 years with my children, uh, about 8 years now with our grandchildren. And in this church, since you sent me away on our first sabbatical where I learned all about benedictions, I've been doing it for 11 years here. So that part is in you. What God has impressed with newness upon my heart is something else altogether. In the Beth Moore studies that we are doing there, on the, after that last week's tape that you listened to on the power of words, the very first day's study was about the tongue. And she talked about the sins of the tongue. James chapter 3 talks about the fact that the, just like huge ship can be steered by a single little rudder. Just like a huge forest fire can be started by a little spark. She says that's what the tongue is like. It's, it's full of deadly poison. It's an unruly evil. It is set on fire by the flames of hell. I mean that's a pretty harsh indictment of the human tongue. Of course the next, chap, next study was on Isaiah and the burning coals from the altar that purifies and so what God brought to my mind afresh was the power of the tongue, not only for good but for evil. And basically what she said was, if you want to harness the full potential of your tongues to bless, then you better take care of cleansing, cleansing it too. And so that's what God has given me a fresh understanding of. That if I am to release to the fullest potential the power of my words to bless my family and these spiritual sons and daughters that to me are becoming as important. Friday night we had about 14 of our worship leaders and all in there and Last night I was talking to one of them, I said, it was a throwback to me when my children would bring all their friends. They're all the age of my sons and daughters. So we have dozens and dozens of children and grandchildren. If I need to realize that power to bless them, then I have to deal with the sins of my tongue and not do it casually. And she mentioned six of them. Gossip. Lying. Which includes exaggeration and all those things. Profanity. Rude and unkind words sarcasm, taking God's name in vain. And she made us think about others. So I had to do an inventory of each one of them. And last Saturday and Sunday before I came to the pulpit, I was coming back for the first time after these things had been brought to my attention. I spent the whole morning just getting rid of those things, whatever manifestations. Because I wanted my words here to have power. Just like these people who run the relay races, they not only practice the positive things, the handing over of the baton, they deny themselves a whole lot of other things that are pleasurable. Sleeping in, eating all kinds of things that feel good. You know the same thing is true with our tongues. Not only do we learn the positive of the how to bless part of it, the scripture, the spiritual gifts and the special circumstances, we need to do the same kind of thing and deny those pleasures. And folks, don't kid yourself. All of the sins of the tongue are pleasurable, otherwise we wouldn't do them. Don't tell me gossip isn't pleasurable. Proverbs says they are like sweet morsels. Now they turn bitter in your stomach, but they're pretty sweet. When we speak rudely or unkindly, we do it because it makes us feel good at that time. There are very real, legitimate pleasures in these things, and we need to set those things aside. Not just because they're bad, but because God has captured our heart with a much bigger calling for our tongues. And that is to be men and women who begin to speak words of blessing to physical and literal sons and spiritual sons and daughters. Uh, a picture that helped me from the first time, reinforced I should say, was an unexpected source, an, an, an ad from Microsoft. I have no idea whether they mean what they say or not, but I know it speaks exactly to this issue. Uh, let me just go back. They have this ad that comes out recently called Your Potential is Our Passion. As I said, I have no idea what they mean by this. 
But when I read it, I said, that's what it's all about. That's what this business of blessing is all about. That can we look to our sons and our daughters? Can we look to our spiritual children? And can we say, your potential is my passion. And I want to do everything I can to release that potential. And blessing is one of the primary ways in which we do that. My blessing for you this morning, last night was different. This morning as I was reading and preparing my heart, what he reminded me of was the, how often the Israelites forgot. So I just have one blessing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was given. Jesus said, he will take the things of me and remind you of them. He will bring my words to your mind. And so that's the only blessing I have for you. May the Spirit of God as often as you need to, bring what you have heard today to your mind. (laughs) And may that give you the impetus to run the race and hold tight to that baton and let it go when you need to. Go in Jesus' name.